Welcome back to Northway's D Group Podcast. I'm your host, Rodney Mills, and I'm so glad that you stopped by to listen. This is a show for those who are apprenticing their lives to Jesus. Here's our premise. that A disciple is a person who is willing to give up their preconceived ideas of what life is all about, to abandon their previous way of living, immersing themselves into the way, the truth, and the life of the Master in order to be like Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this, that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that sounds like a negative proposition, but, but it's really not. It's, it's a call to die to the old self and to be brought alive in Christ as we follow and as we learn from him. You might remember we said it this way, that an apprentice is a person who submits or binds themselves to a master craftsman for the sake of learning a trade. And, and that's what we're committing to do, learning from the master how to do life in the kingdom of God. And Paul believed this was our destiny, that the life we were meant to live. And, and he said it in no uncertain terms. He said in Romans 8, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that simply means that God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who follow him along the same lines as the life of his son. This is the life you were meant to live. That's why our theme as a Christ follower is quite simply, the aim of my life is to be like Christ. Now, the way I see it, as much of a challenge as that may sound, it really simplifies things. I simply need to be a student of the life and teachings of Christ. We discovered this a couple of weeks ago as we talked about the disciples' freedom formula. Jesus said that if we stick with this, living out what he told us to do, that we are his disciples for sure. He said, then you will experience for yourselves the truth, and the truth will free you. You will know the truth. Now remember, knowing in the biblical sense is almost always referring to an experiential practice or an interactive relationship. It's not just head knowledge. You know it. You know it because you've experienced it for yourself. And, and now you know for yourself that it's true. And Jesus says, because you're putting his specific teachings into practice, you are a disciple of Christ for sure. And so that's what we're doing. We're looking closely at how Jesus lived and what Jesus taught. And as we hear it, as we observe it, and then we put it into practice, we will experience his freedom now as we begin living out our eternal lives in the kingdom of the heavens, learning to love, live, and lead like Jesus. So let's jump in. Let's begin looking closely at what it looks like to love like Jesus. Now, in the earliest stages of my thought process about what these lessons might contain, I, I was conceptualizing what we would discuss, and I thought it would be primarily be talking uh, uh, or taking some snapshots of Jesus's life, looking in on the narratives, catching him in action, so to speak, and, and then identifying the specific activities that we need to emulate saying something like this, Jesus acted loving in this particular way, so we should too. And we absolutely will do some of that before we're finished. But there's a deeper truth we need to get to first. 
If we are to do the acts of love like Jesus did, we first need to understand how Jesus loves. Not just the outward manifestation, but the internal love. What kind of love motivated him to act the way he did? Remember, we're not just after behavior modification, we're after inner transformation. So let's try to get to the heart of Jesus, because if you're going to love like Jesus, it starts with the heart. I want to begin today with what may seem to be a somewhat aloof and theological discussion. It's a subject I had not paid enough attention to over the years because of the difficulty of understanding it. And it's this whole idea, this doctrine, this principle called the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And particularly what I want to speak to is Trinitarian love. So hang in there with me. We're going to go deep here for a few minutes, but it's so powerful. This is one of our longer lessons, and because of the depth of the content, you you might uh, even want to print out the transcript and, and read along to make some notes. Now, the word Trinity doesn't actually even appear in the Bible, but even though the word might not be explicitly stated, there are a number of passages where it's actually seen. The early church came to grips with the reality of the Trinity fairly early on, and by the early third century, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, he started using the term Trinity and teaching the principles, and we've been wrestling with it ever since. We see subtle and explicit references that lead to the idea of the Trinity. For example, in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You see all three there, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Great Commission to which we've been referring in these lessons is another verse that references the Trinity as well. Go therefore, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. The Trinity. Three in one. Now, the real question I'd like to present today is not so much to completely grasp the complexity of the Trinity, but what is the significance of the Trinity? If we're to understand the love of Jesus and even how to love like Jesus, I think you'll see that this is where we have to begin. You see, God has made known to us his threefold reality via the names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, names that signify dynamic relationships within the Trinity. The one true God is is a community of three divine persons existing in one infinite spirit being. And As an early church father stated, the Trinity self is a sweet society. (laughs) St. Augustine read in 1 John 4, 16 that God is love. And so he proposed the idea that love requires a lover, someone to be loved, the beloved, and the spirit of love that flows between them. He then concluded that God the Father is the lover, God the Son is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit is the personal love that connects them. And when we look closely, we see that the Trinity is love revealed, that it's demonstrating the self-forgetting, self-giving compassion often missing in the world today. So let's dig deeper for a moment, though, and I want to try to get a handle on the kind of love that is flowing back and forth among the Trinity. 
If we were to really understand the specific kind of love Jesus taught and revealed to us, we need better language, maybe more words to distinguish different kinds of love, something the ancient Greeks definitely had. Uh, You've probably heard some of this along the way in your faith walk if you've been a believer for very long. One kind of love that the Greeks talked about was eros. Uh, It's an intimate or a sensual kind of love. It's a physical love. Uh, We even derive our word erotic from this word. Uh, Perhaps less familiar to you is storge. Uh, It's a family kind of love, a love between parents and children, more specifically. Uh, Third, the the Greeks used another word for love called philio, a friendship-type love, uh, BFFs, or sometimes even a, a husband and wife, mutual compatibility. In fact, Philadelphia comes from this word. It actually means the city of brotherly love. But last on our list is the greatest love word, I think, agape, and it is a selfless love. As a believer, you've, again, probably heard this word many times. The the word agape was certainly a word within the Greek language prior to the time of Christ, but, but the new Christians embraced and infused it with even more meaning. They implied that this kind of love is of divine nature, and this is, in fact, Uh, the most dominant word used for love in the New Testament, and it's used nearly 120 times. I would contend that it finds its best example and demonstration within the Trinity, as we will see in just a few moments. Uh, One classic theologian, St. Thomas Aquinas, defined agape love as love that has the desire to see others succeed. My favorite and most often used definition comes from C.S. Lewis, who wrote a book called The Four Loves, and he defined this biblical love, agape, as a selfless love, a love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. Most of the time, when you see the word love in the New Testament, that's the kind of love it's referring to. And agape love is at the heart of the Trinitarian relationship. So here's a working definition for this session about Trinitarian agape love. It is characterized by self-giving, unconditional loving, mutual affirmation, promoting the welfare of the other, and sheer delight at being together. That's pretty big, I know. So let me let me say that again, if you're especially if you're not looking at the notes. Uh, Trinitarian agape love is characterized by self-giving, unconditional loving mutual affirmation, promoting the welfare of the other, and sheer delight at being together. So we notice right here in this definition how love and joy go hand in hand. So pay close attention to that as we move forward. Now, as a quick illustration, my wife, Christy, and I, probably like many other couples, we we took a moment during our wedding ceremony to merge two candles into one larger candle, symbolizing the, the two becoming one flesh. But of course, that's only an, 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 that act is only a, a symbol because she and I know, and we experience the reality of that, getting perhaps a glimpse and a taste of the Trinity because agape love for us, at least when we're living it out like we should and, and often do, it's represented by that self-giving, unconditional loving, mutual affirmation, promoting the welfare of the other and that sheer delight at being together. That really does define the kind of marriage that Christy and I strive to have. And we don't always get this right. And in fact, I, I, I blow it a lot more often than she does. But I can tell you this, and probably every couple would agree with this, that the times I think our marriage is struggling the most is when I'm self-focused, when I'm self-absorbed, and when I'm not self-giving, and I'm not promoting what's best for her. 
But because we've worked really hard at this over the years, most of the time there, there is a, a mutual back and forth of admiring one another, proud of each other's accomplishments, taking joy in the successes we each other experience. And when we're firing on all symbols, this, this kind of selfless love, there is absolutely nowhere else I want to be. I can tell you, love and joy do go hand in hand. And Christy even had a, a cushion made to remind us of it. It sits on our bed and it says, together is our favorite place to be. It's kind of sappy, I know, but it really is true. And by the way, this is how God intended marriage to be from the very beginning. I mean, you notice the Trinitarian reference right here in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. In what way were we created in the image of Trinity? It says, let us make man in our image. And Jesus would later reiterate this for us. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so like the Trinity is three in one, married couples are to become two in one. Oh, no, it's not. It's certainly not a perfect illustration, but, but maybe it helps us to see that this is what Jesus has been experiencing for all eternity's past. The Trinity living in perfect community, this relational existence of an eternal dance of agape love. Now, all that may seem fine and dandy in the supernatural world of the heavens, but you got to remember this. Jesus' life and his ministry on earth, it flowed from his life in the Trinity. He was still a member of the Trinity, though he was also fully man. I mean, we see evidence of this everywhere in the Gospels. And Jesus said in John chapter 10 that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Even in human flesh, Jesus the Son said things like, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. He said, the Father is greater than I. He said that he came to serve, not to be served. And then after his baptism, he even submitted to the Holy Spirit, it says, that he was led into the wilderness like, like a child submitting to parents by taking their hands and, and going where they're led. And who could forget what may be the greatest word in the whole Bible? Nevertheless, Jesus said, nevertheless, as he prayed to the Father in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Self-giving. Unconditional loving, mutual affirmation, promoting the welfare of the other. And the Father. Let's talk about him for a moment. We hear his voice booming in the Gospels. Once at Jesus' baptism and the other at the Mount of Transfiguration. John Ortberg says, in effect, that the Father was saying, This is my priceless Son. I am so pleased with him. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. Love him. Follow him. You see that? The father doesn't draw attention to himself. All the focus is on his great admiration for his son, and he wants everyone to know it. Self-giving, unconditional loving, mutual affirmation, promoting the welfare of the other. And then think about the Holy Spirit for a moment. Jesus says in John 14, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, there's the Trinity, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. <laughs> so in other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't exist in order to, to draw attention to himself. He wants to get people to focus on Jesus. Self-giving, unconditional loving, mutual affirmation, promoting the welfare of the other. 
I love the way Dale Bruner puts it. It's often been said that the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of the Trinity, the great neglected person of the Godhead. But the Holy Spirit's desire and work is that we be overcome again, thrilled again, excited and gripped again by the wonder, the majesty, the the relevance of Jesus. The Holy Spirit does not mind being Cinderella outside the ballroom if the prince is honored inside his kingdom. Oh, and there's so much more we could say. But again, I can, I can hear you saying, well, that's all great to think about, Rodney, but what difference does it make? What's the significance of the Trinity, particularly as it relates to apprenticing our lives to Christ? Well, let me offer up in our next segment an illustration of sorts that might just help us. Now, this is where using your printed transcript is going to help as I've developed a diagram of these interlinked circles to visualize this. So you might want to grab that real quick. Now, first of all, uh, let me just say, what we see is that the Trinity exists in an eternal state of agape love. We've made this point fairly clearly so far, self-giving, unconditional loving, mutual affirmation, promoting the welfare of the other, and sheer delight at being together. And that's the way the Trinity has existed from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time. It's an eternal state. But in the fullness of time, Jesus brings perfect Trinitarian agape love to dwell among us. You see, agape is first seen in the gospel story as the kind of love God the Father has for us. You know John 3.16 well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, I can't imagine giving up my son. That kind of selfless and sacrificial act of the Father is virtually incomprehensible. But what could be the motivation for such an act? It's because the Father so loved the world. He loved us. But, of course, we see it in Jesus as well. Paul tells us that Jesus uh, made himself of no reputation, took, a, took upon him the form of a certain servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And so what we see is this self-giving from Jesus, unconditional loving, promoting our welfare, desiring God's best for us. And so he demonstrated it day in and day out dealing patiently and compassionately with the Samaritan woman who resisted his efforts to lead her to the truth, patiently nurturing his disciples who were spiritually dull, strong-willed, self-confident to the point of arrogance, and yet he demonstrated extraordinary humility and love by washing their feet, as we just talked about. He deals lovingly and non-judgmental with the woman caught in adultery. He loved the lowly, the unlovely, the outcasts, and the marginalized in society. An extraordinary demonstration of perfect Trinitarian agape love comes to earth to dwell with us, affirming, encouraging, blessing, and releasing the good in others. But he doesn't just come to demonstrate the special kind of love to us. Listen, friend, Jesus extends an invitation to participate in this perfect Trinitarian agape love. We see this in John 15 when Jesus announces that the kingdom of God has come near. He's announcing the availability of God, access to the Trinity, to this everlasting, perfect agape love. This, my friends, is where Jesus invites you to be his disciple, to apprentice your life to his. 
I mean, look at this invitation in one of our primary verses for today. This is in John 15. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Now you remain in my love. So do you see it? It's an invitation into the Trinity's community of love. As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Now remain in my love. Experience the eternal, ongoing interconnectedness of self-giving, mutual affirmation, unconditional loving of God. Remember, this phrase to remain or to abide, as it might say in your translation, it means to make yourself at home. Jesus is saying, the Father loves me, I love you, now make yourself at home in our love. And perhaps, not unlike St. Augustine's understanding of the Trinity, that the Father was the lover, the Son, the Beloved, and the Holy Spirit, the personal love that connects them, Paul extends this Trinitarian understanding of this invitation in Romans 5. Listen to this. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So Jesus commands us to remain in his love. But how do we know if we are remaining, abiding, making ourselves at home in his love? Well, Jesus clarifies that for us quite well. Look at verse 10 of John 15. He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. So do you see this submission, this self-giving on display? Jesus, an equal third of the Trinity, says that he keeps his Father's commands. And that's how he remains in his love. The Son loves the Father so intimately, he doesn't obey out of obligation or duty or with resentment. On the contrary, it's the Son's great love and admiration and affirmation of the Father that causes him to obey. And the same should go for us. Keeping his commands is the natural outflow of our great love for him. Loving God completely comes first, abiding in his love. And then obedience is the natural response. Love first and obedience will follow. Now, it stands to reason next, then, that we should know what commands we're supposed to obey, right? If he says, keep my commands, we got to know what that is. So Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark here either. He doesn't make us decipher some cryptic message. He spells it out for us in black and white in just a couple of verses later. Verse 12, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. It's so good because this leads us to our next major point. Trinitarian agape love is made complete in us as we love each other the way he loves us. Now, much of what I'm talking about here in this session comes out of an epiphany of sorts I had during prayer. We were in the early stages of developing some one-on-one discipleship materials similar to these D groups, and one of our assignments each week was also a memory verse. Our first memory verse, was it so resonated with me that I wasn't able to stop thinking about it. It's found in 1 John chapter 4. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we should also love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. Memorizing and meditating on that verse is what triggered this illustration I've been using here today 
I started drawing this sort of double eight figure in my journal. And the word that stood out to me was this, this word complete. His love is made complete in us. Your version may say perfect. His love is made perfect. But, but as I pondered this word complete, it made me think that perhaps without this other focused heart condition in my life, my experience of God's love would be incomplete. If we love one another, God, God not only remains in us, his love is made complete in us. And so that double eight illustration that hopefully you're looking at, or at least at some point this week you'll take a look at it, that, that illustration is made complete. The, the Trinity exists, get this, let's think about it all together. The Trinity exists in an eternal state of self-giving, unconditional loving, mutual affirmation, promoting the welfare of the other, and sheer delight of being together. And then perfect Trinitarian agape love is brought to earth as the Father loves us so much he surrenders his Son for our sake. The Son surrenders his will to the Father to show his great love for us, and the Holy Spirit brings the reality of it to our hearts. And Jesus tells us to abide in his love. And as wonderful as all that may be, you'd think that would be enough. But Jesus says it's not. His love is made complete only when we love one another. You see, this is just too powerful to let go of here. We spend so much time focusing on the personal relationship dynamic of God's saving work in our lives, and, and rightly so. But could the reason we don't understand why life doesn't change very much, even though we attend church, we pray, even read the Bible and tithe, is it that we have yet to truly embrace this final condition for perfect and complete love? I mean, he put it very plainly back in chapter 13 of, of, of the book of John. So, so now I, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. A new commandment, I mean, the commandments to love God and to love our neighbors had been around for a long time. So what made it new, though, is that it was brought to life in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and this is no ordinary love. This is Trinitarian, agape love. And notice what he says. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And the way he loves us brings a, a revolutionary new meaning to the whole concept of love. Now, a quick sidebar to this, related to this illustration. Uh, this is an illustration of how Christ's love is made complete or made perfect. And you got to remember this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. And so the understanding is that we will love one another, love other disciples, that I will love you like Jesus loves me, and you will love me like Jesus loves you. You see, this principle should apply to us and our love for each other. And as his apprentices, we should be working with all diligence to live our lives in this way. And I think as a church and as a, as a, a fellowship of God's followers, most of the time it appears we're doing okay with it, avoiding much of the drama we would expect to experience in the world with those who were not his disciples. But my question is, do we go far enough? Do we just tolerate one another? Do we consider the absence of conflict to be a representation of what Jesus is talking about? Or should we be actively engaged in this self-giving, unconditional loving, mutual affirmation, promoting the welfare of each other? Oh, I think we know the answer to that, don't we? Now, I've discovered the truth of this principle in my own life as I have 
pursued loving the people of my local fellowship more and more. I'll tell you, my affection and admiration has grown for them and my desire to be with them and to encourage them for, for, their, for their unique and, and special gifts has grown as well. And what's happening in my heart, I, this, is, this is the truth, what's happening in my heart as I open myself up to letting his love flow through me to others is another proof of this truth, that love and joy go hand in hand. We go back to verse 11 of John 15. Jesus even said it. I've told you these things. And again, the things he's told us are the commandments to remain in his love and to love one another. And why has he told, you, told us these things? He says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You hear that? I mean, love and joy go hand in hand. Think about those statements. He said, our love is made complete as we love one another, and thus our joy will be made complete. If you're not fully experiencing the joy of Christ, could it possibly be you're not fully obeying the command of Christ to love one another? I mean, remember a couple of weeks ago again, as we talked about the disciples' freedom formula, if you stick with this, living out what I tell you, keeping my commandments, abide in my words, remain faithful to my teachings, you are my disciples for sure. Then you will experience for yourselves the truth, and that truth will free you. You see this, my friends? Truly, this is the very heart of the matter. If you want to know the secret ingredient to that freedom formula, it's not about your success or your prosperity. True freedom is not even about protecting your rights, as most Americans have been indoctrinated to believe. No, the kind of joy-filled freedom Jesus offers is found in selfless, sacrificial loving. The kind of love he showed us over and over with his life and demonstrated to us fully by dying on the cross. And so with great boldness and confidence, I would contend that until we fully embrace love as our first and foremost rule of life, we will never really experience true freedom that is full of joy. We'll just be faking our way through, living a life of pious religiosity, maybe staying out of trouble but never really being free, the kind of free Jesus promises. This is the lesson one. This is lesson one for the apprentice of Jesus. Rule number one for life in the kingdom. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. My friend, I'm going to tell you, if you're struggling with agape, if you're struggling to express this kind of selfless, sacrificial love towards others, then I encourage you, take a moment and consider how God feels toward you. He looks down at what others may see as imperfect and flawed. He sees past all of your brokenness and your self-induced corruption. He looks past all of that to express his love for you. Think of it. While we were yet sinners, virtual enemies of God, Christ died for us. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. And then when you consider how grace-oriented his love is towards you, When you are fully captured by it, caught up in his Trinitarian love, then loving others who are just as flawed and imperfect as you will simply be a matter of seeing them the way God looks at us all. You'll see them as his unique creation, his handiwork, his artwork, his prized possession. Oh, friends, let's apprentice our lives to Christ. Let's practice this Trinitarian agape love, self-giving, unconditional loving, mutual affirmation promoting the welfare of others. And just maybe, just maybe, we will learn to love like God.